Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he constantly used short stories or parables to communicate spiritual truths to the crowds that gathered to hear him. By telling parables, the secrets of the kingdom would be revealed to Jesus' disciples, but they would be hidden from his opponents. Listen to this talk from the parable series as we dive into some of Jesus' most memorable stories. When I was in high school, I participated in what, in what was called a bigger and better, bigger or better, a scavenger hunt. Have any of you ever done one of those before? Uh, what you do, we, we were in high school at the time, we would get into groups of maybe two, three, or four, and we were given one penny or something like it. Sometimes it's even like a, a rubber band or something. But we would be dropped off in a neighborhood, and we'd knock on a door, and when someone opened the door, we'd say, we're doing this bigger or better scavenger hunt, and I have this penny here. Could you go and get something bigger or better to trade for this penny? And so most of the time, the owner of the house was very gracious. They'd disappear for a moment. Then they'd come back with something in their hand that was bigger or better. And then you'd take that item and you'd go to the next house. And you'd say, we're doing this bigger, better scavenger hunt here. And I wondered if you might have something bigger or better. And you would do this until it was time to return back to wherever we were meeting. In this case, I think it was the church. And it was remarkable what people brought back. If I remember correctly, one group brought back a nice bicycle. Um, another group, if I remember correctly, uh, they brought back a, um, a TV set, which back then TV sets were worth some money. Now you can't get rid of them if you need to. So if someone gives you that in this scavenger hunt, give it back. Say, no, that's not worth the penny. But anyway, it was worth something back then. But I think the winner, and, and I'm, I'm just trying to recall what happened, but I believe the winner drove up in a truck and they had a dining set there, a table and chairs. And, um, and they, they would have won the contest if that's what happened. And I think that is what happened here. But it was remarkable because you think they started with, with something of no value or little, little value here, and, and they exchanged it for something of great value. And the things that people brought back, it was remarkable. I remember thinking at the time, you know, you can make a living at this. You know, start with my penny every day, go door to door, you know, and come back with something worth something and then sell it, you know, and get, of course, it wouldn't quite work that way. Last week, we talked about the fact that, at least from my perspective, it's amazing that we can take physical wealth, which as we're going to see in a minute from the parable we're going to look at, is not worth anything at least in eternity. But we're able to take physical wealth and trade it for spiritual wealth or eternal wealth and, and something that will be waiting for us in heaven. So something of no value traded for something of tremendous value. Jesus talked, of course, about storing up treasure in heaven. Don't store it up here. Store it up there where moth and rust can't destroy where thieves won't break in and steal it. It's very secure up there. But the fact that we can somehow trade what we have here for that, I find it quite remarkable. Now, today we're continuing our series on the parables, and the, the parable we're looking at, looking at today has a similar message um, as, as last week, but Jesus adds some interesting ideas that you may never have thought about before in terms of 
how we use what we have. Now, this parable is really about our wealth, but it, it could translate into our, our talents, using our talents or our time or, or our wealth or whatever else. I think there are applications to this parable to some other things. Now, before we read the parable, it's found in Luke 16. Before I read it, it's important to understand that this parable was intended for the disciples. It says that right up front, Jesus said to his disciples. I think that matters, and that's a detail when you're reading the parables you need to understand because some of the messages would not be tolerated by just the crowds. And before we get to the end of this parable, or by the time we get to the end of this parable, we'll discover that the Pharisees did not like at all what Jesus had to say here. They didn't like it. But this is a message for someone who considers him or herself a disciple of Jesus. If you say, I'm, I'm a disciple of you, Jesus, then this is a parable that's intended to speak to us. And people that don't know Jesus Christ would not, I don't believe, have the faith to do what Jesus is suggesting here. Because it takes faith to live in this world mindful that the things we do in this world impact the next world. And so we live differently in the present, looking for what's ahead. That's, that's one of the things that reveals our faith. And so let's begin reading the parables found in Luke 16. Let's begin in verse 1. He, referring to Jesus, also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Now let's stop here for a moment. Here Jesus is setting up the context for this particular parable. Somebody who's described in the parable as being a rich man, this would have been a, a, a wealthy landowner, no doubt, but he had, had a manager that was attending to his affairs. Now, this happens in our world today as well. You know, you have someone who's a manager or a steward that, that handles your wealth or makes, you know, sure that things are fine with your estate or whatever else. And that's what this guy was doing. This guy was taking care of this, the possessions of this guy, all the possessions of this guy. But this wealthy landowner heard that this manager, steward, was, was squandering his possessions. Now, one thing about this is that at this point in the story, we don't know whether or not the manager was dishonest or not. Uh, the word that's used here doesn't imply dishonesty. It implies mismanagement. In other words, what the guy was doing was using his master's wealth to live extravagantly himself. And in biblical times, the manager was allowed to do this somewhat. You were allowed to, to be housed by the owner. You, you'd be fed by the owner. There were certain things about his wealth that you could help yourself to. But this guy was, was wasting it. And we've, of course, seen examples of this in our culture today. Have you ever heard about somebody who was maybe had a power of attorney over someone else's estate, and, and suddenly they're buying new cars? They're taking extravagant trips. And that happens in our day and age today, and that's what was happening in this story Dr. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, this particular steward forgot that he was a steward and began to act as if he were the owner. He became a prodigal steward who wasted his master's wealth. His master heard about it and immediately asked for an inventory of his goods and an audit of his books. He also fired his steward. Now, the word 
prodigal means to be wasteful, extravagant, reckless, or uncontrolled. And so when you read about the prodigal son, for example, it's just describing someone who is so wasteful. The prodigal son took his entire inheritance and just blew it, just wasted it. So Warren Wiersbe calls this guy a prodigal steward because he, he had all this wealth available to him that belonged to his master, but he began to spend it and waste it on his own life. And so the manager hears about it and um, is not real happy. Now, if someone is a manager or a steward, and why this matters to us is, as I said last week, what we have belongs to God. We are just stewards. And, and so this applies to us. The owner in this parable, of course, is God, and we're the, we're the manager. And so the question is, how do we manage? And if someone is a manager or a steward of something that, that belongs to someone else, how would you wish they would manage those things? What would you hope would be true of somebody who is managing your, your estate? And I think it would be a number of things, right? You'd hope they would be honest. You want them to be honest. I, I'd want them to be competent, you know, ones who would take advantage of opportunities. I'd want them to have a certain amount of skill. I wanted, I'd want them to be diligent. I'd want them to be somebody that I could put a great deal of trust in. A good example of a steward in biblical times or a manager would have been Joseph from the Old Testament. You remember the story of Joseph? His brothers sold him into slavery, and he found himself down in Egypt in the household of a guy named Potiphar who, who, who served the Pharaoh. And Joseph, even though he was a slave, eventually became the steward or manager of Potiphar's entire household. He was really living a very good life at this point. It would have been like he was a free man. And he, he was such a good manager that the text indicates in the Old Testament that Potiphar only needed to worry about what he would eat each day. He didn't concern himself with anything else, just, oh, what's it going to be today? What do I want to have for lunch? That was it. That's how faithful Joseph was. And he becomes for us a model of how we're supposed to be. But the guy in this story obviously was not a good steward. He knew he was going to get sacked. And so the question is, what, what will he do about it? And so let's continue reading the story in verse 3 of Luke 16. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I could relate to both of those things if I were sacked, by the way. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too embarrassed to beg. It just makes sense. Then verse 4, he said, I know what I'll do, that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Well, take your invoice, he said to him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Well, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. Now, this story illustrates at this point why it is that if you're firing somebody, if you're a boss or something, and you're firing someone that's dishonest, that you need to fire them and then give them a box to get their things and get out of there because you don't, you don't want them to be in this place of influence any longer where they can cause harm. And that's what this guy did. 
Now, I think that the, the owner kept him on because he needed to see the state of his estate. He needed for this guy to explain the books and what was going on. He needed to get a good handle. And so he said, I'm firing you, but he didn't fire him right away. And so there was this period of time where the guy came up with this scheme. He decided to renegotiate the contracts that this owner had with all these other people that owned him money. And so for one, you know, it was wheat, and another it was oil. And he appropriately, depending on what the product was, sliced it back. He said, well, let's renegotiate that. Let's put it at a different amount. Now, these suppliers or these people that owed, owed the owner money, they, I don't think they were dishonest. They've been used to dealing with this steward or this manager, and so they, they were just thrilled, you know. And I don't know how this guy positioned it, but he, he might have just made it clear that he's the one granting them the discount, and they received this discount. And they were so happy about it. Now, why did he do it? Well, this is what he reasoned. Obviously, in biblical times, they had a view of hospitality that's different than in our culture. So in biblical times, or even other cultures, like down in Central America, they have this a real hosp hospitality mindset. But in Israel at the time, if someone came knocking on your door and they were needy, you'd open the door to them. And this guy thought in his mind, after I'm sacked, after I lose my job and I'm homeless and, and without money and without a job, I'm going to knock on the doors of all these different people that I renegotiated the contracts for, and I'm going to tell them I've, I've been fired, I, I don't have a job, and I don't have a home, and because they're going to be so grateful for what he did, they're going to say, well, come and live with us. It was a very realistic scenario, and so he'd stay with that person, the first one, until he overstayed his welcome, and then he'd say, okay, I'm going to go, and then he'd go to the next one. And if he struck, structured it well enough, this was his entire retirement plan. I'll just keep going around to the different ones and maybe even recirculate or whatever. He says, I've got this thing set, all because he was thinking ahead. Now, it's at this point in the story that it, it gets interesting because a lot of Jesus' parables, if, as he's telling the story, a lot of Jesus' parables are very realistic, and I'm sure the crowd would be listening and saying, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. But a lot of the parables, at a certain point, he throws a twist, and it's the twist that just stops you in your tracks, and you say, what? There's a twist in this particular story, and it comes down to the question, how do you think the, minister, the, the owner would respond to what the manager did. He was already, of course, upset with him because he, he had been wasting his money, but now, behind his back, he made all these agreements. Now he was dishonest. Now he had stolen from his, his owner, his master. So how would you expect him to respond? And I think most of us would agree that he'd be furious, but that's not what happened. We pick up the story in verse 8 of Luke 16. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. It means shrewdly. And then we come to Jesus' conclusion. He says, for the sons of this age are more astute or more shrewd than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. He was saying that the people of this world who really don't know Christ are just a little bit better, a little bit more sophisticated about arranging their circumstances and, and using their relationships to advance their own future. They're just better at it. 
And, and this guy was better at it. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, the children of this world are experts at seizing opportunities for making money and friends and getting ahead. Kind of like people networking, you know, network with all these people. They're very good at those kinds of things. And then God's people, he says, should take heed and be just as wise when it comes to managing the spiritual affairs of life. You see, Jesus implied that what this guy did through the parable, Jesus is saying what he did was a good thing. And there's the twist because any of us reading it would say that was dishonest. Why on earth would Jesus praise this guy for being dishonest? Well, that is not what he praised him for. He wasn't praising him for his dishonesty. He was praising him for being clever enough to plan ahead, clever enough to take his present position and consider what the future might hold and then doing things in the present to prepare for the future. That's why he was so smart. He leveraged his influence for the future, to have a brighter future, a more secure future. J.A. Martin explains it this way, the dishonest manager had not done a good thing, but he had been careful to plan ahead, using material things to ensure a secure future. Jesus was not teaching that his disciples should be dishonest. He was teaching that they should use material things for future spiritual benefit. This is a good lesson from a bad example. And then Jesus comes to the application of the story. So he tells the story, and, and then he says this, beginning in verse 9. He says, and I tell you, and again, he's talking to his disciples. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, and this could be translated when you fail, or when you die or pass away, it could be either one. You know, he's saying here, you know, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous money so that when either the money fails or you do and you die, they, in other words, these friends you made with that money, may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, I'll talk about this in a minute, but that's a very unusual thought. And then in verse 10, he says, for whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And I want you to understand something about that sentence. When Jesus said, whoever is faithful in very little, the very little is money. It's all your wealth. He's not talking about a person who's faithful with just a few things. He's talking about, he's calling money or wealth. He's, he's describing the person who's faithful with what, all of this they have, that little thing called wealth, that penny. Whoever's faithful with that thing will also be faithful in much. Whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. He goes on to say, so if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, that's why I'm telling you that's what it is. It's the money. He called it little thing here, very little. He says, if you haven't been faithful with unrighteous money, who will trust you with what's genuine? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be a slave of two masters since he'll either hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one another, or one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. Now, we're going to talk about this briefly here. Jesus is introducing three 
interesting ideas or thoughts. And again, some of these you may never have really considered before. And so I want to highlight those three. But before I do, I want us to step away from the parable just for a moment. And I want to introduce something that Paul, the Apostle Paul, said to the Philippians because it ties in with this story and it deals with the mindset that Christians are supposed to have concerning what they have, concerning their time and energy, talents, and their wealth, of course. In Philippians chapter 3, when, when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he was in prison. He wrote several of the letters, New Testament letters, like Ephesians and Philemon and Colossians. He, he wrote this from prison. And while Paul was in prison, there were people that were attacking him. You know, as if it wasn't, weren't bad enough that he was in prison, now they were attacking him or whatever. And Paul was describing his attackers, these antagonists, to the church in Philippi. And what he said what their problem was, or part of their problem was, he said they set their minds on earthly things. Their problem is these people are living just for the here and now. These are people that are just living for the present. And they don't understand what God is doing. They've got their noses right here and all that's present here. And then Jesus said, or I'm sorry, Paul said this then to the church. He said, but, and contrary to them, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition, that's this body, into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Paul was reminding these Philippians that their real citizenship is in heaven. Now, I know we're citizens of this world, you know, might be citizens of this city or whatever. We're citizens of the world, though. But Paul was saying our main citizenship is there. I mean, just think in terms of time alone. We might spend 70 years citizens of this world in eternity. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting for Jesus there. And that's the mindset we have about everything. This is why Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven, because where your treasure is, your heart will be. So our heart needs to be up there. Our treasure needs to be up there as we think of this world we're living in. And so Paul wrote to, I think it was the Colossians. He said, so set your minds on things above. Don't, don't get caught down here. Don't be consumed or distracted by living in this world because it's not, not where it's at. Now, when we go back to this parable, Jesus said some things that have this in mind. To live now with that future in mind, the first point he makes is if we are wise... We will use our earthly wealth to make heavenly friendships. Let's read verse 9 again of Luke 16. Jesus is telling his disciples, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, which it will, these new friends may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Looks pretty straightforward, but it's an interesting idea. He's talking about using the wealth we have to, to build friendships somehow. And I think practically what he's talking about here is use your wealth or, again, time, energy, talents, everything else. We use this to advance the kingdom of God. We use this to advance the good news or the gospel message. That's, of course, what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He spent almost a whole chapter talking about wealth and money. He talked about not worrying about money, but then he also talked about it can't be your idol or your God either. And then, then he closed it by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Use our wealth for that. 
Now, earlier Jesus had said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Actually, Jesus, that was later. Jesus was preparing his disciples for the fact he was going to be leaving them. And he said, don't be, don't be afraid, you know. Don't be concerned. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And I go to prepare a place for you. And that's going to be a magnificent place, Revelation pictures it. I can't even describe hardly what this, this heavenly city is going to be like when there's finally a new heaven and a new earth in this heavenly city. But there are many dwelling places that Jesus is preparing for his disciples. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come and bring you up to be with me. What this parable is saying is that you'll be able to knock on people's doors that you impacted for the kingdom of God. You'll knock on their doors, and because you used what you had to make eternal friends out of them, they're going to open the door and welcome you in. Now, I, I find that a fascinating thought. Now, I think, by the way, when we get to heaven, we'll recognize people. I think we do. Part of the reason I think that is based on the story of the transfiguration. Remember how Jesus took his three closest disciples up on a mountain, James, Peter, John, and, and then all of a sudden Jesus changed before their very eyes. He began to shine like the sun, and then two people joined Jesus they were Moses and Elijah. And then Peter blurts out, as he often did, he said, do you want me to form some shelters for you, Jesus, and Moses and Elijah? And I, I kind of laugh when I read that because I'm thinking, Peter, how did you know who they were? You know, they didn't have Facebook back then. How did he know? I think we'll know. And Jesus is talking about we use our, our wealth in such a way that we win eternal friends. So that when we get to heaven, we'll be able to knock on their door and they're going to open the door up to us because of the difference we made in their lives by either sharing Christ with them or somehow our resources. Wearsby puts it this way, during this brief life, we have the opportunity to use wealth to make friends for God, friends who will meet us in heaven. I personally think of one of the first people I led to faith in Christ, the Jewish woman who lived across the street. I've shared this story before, but I was 14, and she was a middle-aged woman. Her whole life had been raised in a Jewish household, and one day, God opened the door for me to share the gospel with her. And um, if you know the story, you know that after I shared how we're all sinners and we need a Savior, and how God sent His Son to be our Savior, and how He died and rose again from the dead, and need to put faith in Him, I, I offered this prayer that she could pray, and she, she prayed the prayer with me. But she told me the next day she only did it to get rid of me. You know, at the time, I thought, wow, this is wonderful. She prayed to receive Christ. I was so happy about it. But the next day, she said, no. She said, I, I just did it because you asked me to, you know, and, and so I could get rid of you or whatever. But she said that night she couldn't sleep. That night, all she could think about is I'm such a sinner. And what Tim said was right. And I know I'm not right with God, and I don't know how to get right with God, except it's got to be through Jesus. And all night long, she wrestled. As the sun came up, she said yes to Jesus. I have never seen someone change so dramatically in a moment of time. This is part of the reason I'm convinced the, the gospel's true. Because you can't tell me that one conversation from a 14-year-old kid would change someone's life so dramatically. She began to share her new faith with other people. She began to read her Bible. She was just, it was transformed dramatically. A few months after that, maybe as many as six, our family moved to Chicago, and she would send me letters 
in the form of cassette tapes. You know those old tape players, tape recorders where you put in a cassette and you play? She taped letters to me. And she'd have a list of questions from the Bible. She was reading her Bible every day. She'd have all these questions. And if I didn't know the answers, I'm only 14, I could go to dad and say, hey, what's the answer to this one? But I answered her questions. And then six months later, even after that, she died. Cancer throughout her body. They said she was, it just was everywhere, literally everywhere. So one year after we left Chicago, or that, that town to Chicago area, she passed away, but I expect to see her in heaven. I expect she'll be one of the first ones I see, and I can tell you this, that when I knock on the door, she's going to have the biggest smile on her face. She's going to be so grateful, so thankful, and I think this is going to happen to us. I mean, it's what Jesus says. It's, again, an interesting thought, but in addition to the fact that we're wise, we'll use earthly wealth to make heavenly friendships, the second point Jesus made is if we're good stewards of God's wealth, He'll provide us with wealth of our own. Now, again, I, I've mentioned this many times. What we have is not our own. Every good gift comes from God. So if you have something, it's a gift. Last week, I talked about the fact that in Deuteronomy, we read that, that God is the one who gives us the ability to earn wealth. So if you have talents and abilities and skill to, be, to, to earn wealth, it's because God gave that to you. And then the, the strongest case, of course, is, is that we leave it all behind when we die. And so you, you, whatever you have, whatever you have passes on to someone else. I did two funerals yesterday, you know, and everything was left behind to the next generation to say, now what are you going to do with this? It's a stewardship thing. And so it's not really our own, but what we do with this stewardship is going to impact the future. Verses 11 and 12, again, we read, so... If you've not been faithful with unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? So the first thing is that, that unrighteous money can be traded for something that's genuine. And then second, if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? Now, again, I'm telling you, the, the parable is making the point that it doesn't belong to you. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if... If you don't handle well what doesn't belong to you, who does it belong to? God. Then you're not going to get any yourself. Now, let me go back to that word genuine. Verse 16, 11, it says, if you have not been faithful with unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? Well, the word genuine means they're true. It means true, really true, true wealth. He's basically saying, if you have not handled the monopoly money well, Who's going to give you something that's of real value? You know, but second, the idea is wrapped up in here that if you don't steward what belongs to God, then God won't give you wealth of your own. Now, I believe, again, we can store up treasure in heaven. I believe that if we manage well in this life, we'll have treasure in heaven. It won't be what you're thinking of. If you're looking for money treasure, that's not going to be it. I think it's going to take many different forms, but in this life, we're able to store up this treasure in heaven. Part of what I think it means is that you will be given greater responsibility. You're going to be able to have the privilege of serving God in this, maybe this more exalted way. The example that comes to my mind is that Jesus shared the parable you remember about, we shared a couple like this, 
where uh, the landowner or the king disappeared for a while, but before he left, he gave his stewards some talents or some money. There was a lot of money. And he said, I want you to occupy yourselves while I'm gone. I'm coming back, but, but do what you can. And so one, he gave 10 talents, one he gave five, and one he gave one. And you remember the one who had 10 talents doubled it. So did the one who had five, but the one who had one buried it. When the king came back, do you remember what he said? Because you've been faithful with these this talent, these talents I gave you, you're going to be over 10 cities. And suddenly you find him serving, I believe, in the millennial kingdom in this wonderful way, serving Christ in this exalted position. It's going to be stuff like that. Our faithfulness in this life is somehow going to translate into the next. And so in addition to this first point, if we're wise, we'll use our earthly wealth to, make, wealth to make heavenly friendships, and if we're good stewards of God's wealth, he'll provide us with wealth of our own. The last point is if we want to serve God, we cannot be a slave to money. We really have to decide which one we're going to serve here. Again, verse 13, verse 16, sorry. It says, no household slave can be, or, I'm sorry, no household slave can be the slave of two masters since either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. Now, this is, I think, a hard statement to accept because we want to disagree with it. I read that. You can't, you can't love both of them. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, can't you? I mean, I love God, but I kind of also love this money thing over here. Jesus said, no, you can't. Now, he doesn't say, and this is very important, he doesn't say you can't love God and have money. You can. You can do those two things. You can love God and have a lot of wealth. You just can't love them both at the same time. You just don't have the capacity, and so we're forced to choose which one will it be. Which of the two am I going to love? And the reason this matters so much is he says that the one you love will become your master. And I think we're tempted to disagree with that as well. But if you love money, you might think in your mind, this is my money and I'm in control of it. But if you love it, no, it's, it's in charge of you. It'll run your life. And I've seen it happen many times before. People loved money and it consumed them. Everything about money, it became the God in their life. You can't love money without it taking over. You can have it, but you can't love it. Same thing is true, of course, with God. If you love God, you know, then, then and he becomes your, the master in your life. And suddenly, everything you have comes under the umbrella of what he wants, which is how we're supposed to be living our lives. But we have to decide which one is it going to be. Which one am I going to give myself to? Which one will I love? And that choice has profound implications. The one who loves money, you're going to be struggling with all kinds of other things, envy, greed, jealousy, materialism, a whole host of things. But those who love God and say, I love you, everything else is put underneath that, we really live. That's the life that satisfies. So let me summarize my three points here. Ask a few application questions and then read how the Pharisees responded First point was, if we're wise, we'll use our earthly wealth to make heavenly friendships. Second, if we're good stewards of God's wealth, he'll provide us with wealth of our own. We'll store up treasure in heaven. And finally, if we want to serve God, we can't be a slave to money. So here are some questions 
by way of application. Number one, are you using your wealth, and I'd add, or whatever you have, to advance Christ's kingdom? Are you using your wealth to advance his kingdom? Number two, what kind of steward are you with what he's entrusted to you? What kind of steward are you? Are you faithful with what he's given you? Number three, what are you doing now to prepare for the next life? How does this understanding that you're a citizen of heaven impact how you're living your life now? And then finally, who or what has your heart? Now, after Jesus told this parable, we find the response of the Pharisees, and it's a great contrast between the way the disciples were supposed to be and the Pharisees. We read in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things. So they're kind of standing back as Jesus is teaching his disciples. They were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. Can you imagine? They're laughing over there. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people, namely wealth, what's highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. So the question is, what do we love? What will we give ourselves to? To which will we submit ourselves? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you, Lord, again that you have blessed us in so many ways. You've given us so much, but give us a mindset to be stewards. Help us to recognize our citizenship is not in this place. I think how when things get worse in our world today, this mindset will be more and more important. It's not of this world. As we look ahead and we use what you've given us to advance your kingdom, give us the grace to apply this to our circumstances, whatever that would be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.